We'll go to Titus chapter number 1, and we're in verse 5 this morning, and uh, we'll read verse 5 together, and um, we'll just read verse 5 to start with. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we'll read this one verse together. Just get, get the pump primed a little bit, okay? We're going to look at more than one verse, but let's just get started. Verse number 5 together, ready? Titus chapter 1, verse 5. If you need a second, I'll give you a second. And, uh, all right, see, I gave you 10 seconds. All right, here we go, ready? For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you bless the reading of your word. I pray that you help us to, uh, to soak in the truth here today and to realize that uh, we do have people that, are uh, held to that standard, or they should be holding themselves to that standard, uh, but really the standard is for all of us, and an expectation is for all of us to be holy and to be just and blameless. I do pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts, stir our hearts towards uh, to right living and to change and transformation. Of course, we know, Father, that the only real transformation comes from you. It starts on in, inside of us, and it is seen outside soon after. And so, of course, we know, Father, that our salvation is not works-based at all, but we do know that there are works of, that are exhibited of our salvation. The work of God is seen through the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all, all of the things that should be in the life of a believer. So I do pray that you would help us today, Father, to realize that there needs, there needs to be a change. If we have, if we have been saved, we need, to, we need to live the life of a Christian. And I pray that you'd help us because we can't do it on our own. So I do pray that you would uh, give us your strength and power I do pray that you bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For this cause left I thee in Crete, Paul writes, that thou shouldest set in order. That word set in order, it's a medical term, means to straighten a crooked bone. I don't know if you've ever had a crooked bone before. Uh, some of you know what that's like. You've experienced a broken uh, bone at some point, maybe an arm or a leg, and uh, very traumatic at times, and not fun, a fun experience. You might have been having fun before you broke your bone, but once you broke it, uh, it was not pleasant, I'm sure. But we're thankful for, for medicine. We're thankful for, for doctors who can uh, can straighten things out, and I'm thankful for the technology, uh, the x-rays and MRIs, and all of those things that can help doctors, the tools that are there to help uh, get our life back on track after getting hurt. And, uh, but here, there's a need at times, even in a social setting, to fix problems um, in, in the home. In a domestic setting, there's a need sometimes to correct issues in relationships. Uh, in society, there's a need to set in order. Uh, as we talked about the three institutions that God established, he established first which institution with Adam and Eve? Which was that? The home, right? Can we say that together? The home. All right. And um, then we have the next institution which God uh, gave us. What is that? The what? Human government, right? He established government. And you might be saying, God? God gave us government? And yes. And sometimes we don't agree with government. We don't like the structures that are there sometimes. It can be used. And anything that God gives to us can be used the wrong way. Did you know that? Uh, even the Bible. The devil twists the Bible. People will twist scripture to say things that it's not really saying. But the home can be used the wrong way. That's a wonderful institution. But it can, be, uh, it can be an abusive situation for some have experienced that in the place that should be the place of protection and the place of security. 
uh, the structure and love that should be in the home, it can be an abusive situation. Governments can be abusive. Uh, churches even, is another institution, can be abusive and cannot, and many times will not or don't do the things that the church was set up to do. It's not functioning correctly. So why, uh, what do we do in the, in the home, in government? What do we do in the church when things are not correct? Well, first of all, we set things in order. I believe that all of us um, should be, uh, we, we all have all, in a sense, been deputized by God to be the salt and light in this world. And that means that every one of God's institutions that we have a part in, and probably all three of those we have a part in in some way or another, we should be doing all that we can to, to uh, set things in order. As much as we can, as far as we can, with the uh, freedom and responsibility and liberties that we have, we should be setting things in order in the home, government, and the church. The second thing is that Paul tells them to set up leaders, right? To ordain elders. And uh, without leadership, without godly leadership in God's institutions, there is disorder and chaos. You might say, well, pastor, what, shouldn't there be a separation of church and state? You've mentioned government. Shouldn't there be a separation of church and state? My friend, that is a lie. <laughs> I believe that uh, pastors and Christians had a significant role in establishing this wonderful country that we call America. The United States of America is here because of the providence of God. And you look at the laws of our land, and they, they mirror the Bible in many ways. They follow uh, God's moral law. Now, it's been, uh, things have been changed through the years, and there's been corruption that has come in. What do we do? Do we throw up our hands, give up, and say, well, it's not our responsibility. We're going to wash our hands of that. No, I believe that we should set in order things that are broken. Uh, the home, the government, the church, all of those things can, we can apply these principles to. Um, the church is a body. We've heard that many times. And the pastor, uh, as as God's appointed physician at times will need to come in and set some bones. The Holy Spirit comes in and deals with people, sets those bones straight. Did you know as long as we are uh, in our body of flesh, as long as there's people in churches, there's going to be problems. Did you know that? I've heard this said before, and don't take this the wrong way, but people equal problems. All of us are people, and all of us have problems. And so there's going to be needs to set things straight. And um, uh, when the problems arise, the answer to solving the problems is to not hide from the problems. It's not time for the pastor to quit and give up and for all the deacons to resign and say, well, there's nothing we can do to fix this. The answer is to face our problems wherever, we're, wherever we face them or wherever we see them. We need to face the problems and prayerfully settle those things according to the word of God. And so we see there in verse number five, the second part, not only was he to set things in order, but how do you do that? Ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And uh, he says there in verse number six, if any be blameless, these are qualifications, qualifications for uh, pastors, for bishops, elders, they're all the same, uh, the same role in the church, that leadership aspect. And the qualification was that that bishop or pastor should be blameless. Blameless. We looked at what that meant last week. That means that they should be above reproach. The pastor should be a man against whom no charge of immorality or of holding false doctrine is credibly alleged. This is not saying that a minister is held to a higher standard because we sometimes think that, well, the pastor is held to a higher standard. It's saying that the pastor is one who should meet the standard because all of us are really held to a standard of blamelessness, being above reproach. And we should be trying to meet that standard, but the pastor is the one that's expected. At least he should be meeting that standard. No one else should uh, try to lead others and preach what he himself does not live. Have you ever heard the phrase, practice what you preach? You ever heard that before? 
the pastor should practice what he preaches. He should not be uh, a hypocrite, but that applies to all of us, amen? You might say, well, I just, I just won't preach then. <laughs> I just won't. Well, if you call yourself a Christian, well, I'm sorry, you've already kind of thrown, the, thrown that out. Uh, you've identified yourself with Jesus Christ, and so now you need to be living uh, the way that uh, you have, who you are identifying with. Adrian Rogers uh, said so many times, I have young preachers come to me and say, Pastor Rogers, I've been called into the ministry, or maybe I'm at my first church. Would you give me a word? Would you give me something that would help me in my ministry? Uh, maybe they were passing in the hallway, and uh, he was needing to give them some incredible, memorable piece of advice. That's what they were expecting, a word from this great pastor. And he said, well, I pretty much have distilled this down, this great advice that I want to give these young men. I've distilled it all down to one word, and that word is integrity. Integrity. That's not just for the pastor. That's for all of us. We should be people of integrity, where our private life and our public life are the same. We're the same whether we're with this group of friends or we're with this other group of friends. We should, there should be no schism. There should be no separation of who you are in front of people and who you are behind closed doors. The same person. Integrity. Integrity. Honest no matter who is watching. Truthful. A life of blamelessness. That's basically what that's saying. Having integrity. We use that word in our vernacular today. Blameless in our family life. We looked at being the hu- last week, the husband of one wife. He says there in verse six, if any man be blameless, the husband of one wife. And then the second thing was having a, f- a faithful children. Look at it. Not accused of riot or unreally. Now faithful children, that, that, what that means is that they're believers. Children that are believers. If, if a pastor has children that are acting like unbelievers, that pastor is not really qualified for leadership. Uh, that, is a, that is a big statement. Sadly, we have a lot of pastors in the ministry that have been divorced and remarried and have children that are uh, totally against what they are preaching from the Word of God. They are a walking contradiction. And I understand that God can use uh, all kinds of people, and he, uh, he uses people that are divorced and remarried in great ways, in impactful ways, but when it comes to being a pastor, that, that becomes a sticking point for many people. That is a handle. That is something that somebody can say, there is an inconsistent aspect to that person's life. Uh, that is why I believe that Paul has put this in here saying, this is what we want. This is what the expectation is for somebody who's going to stand in, uh, in front of a church and lead a congregation. He should be blameless in his personal life. And then we see uh, Titus 1-7 there, blameless in pers- uh, not only in the family, but the personal life. He says, for a bishop must be blameless. He says it again. See that? Integrity. As the steward of God. Not self-willed. Not soon angry. Not given to wine. No striker. Not given to filthy, filthy lucre. We'll stop there. I'm going to go through uh, these negative aspects first. Verse 7 is a negative verse. Verse 8 is the positive verse, okay? You'll get that in a second. But the first thing that he says there is what? He said the bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed. You know what that means? Self-willed, not self-willed means is he's not self-pleasing. Not living for yourself, but rather living for the good of all people. As a pastor, my job is not to push my personal agenda, but rather to do what is good and in the best interest of the whole congregation. You might be saying, well, pastor, you're allowed to have preferences. Well, yes. Uh, God has given me this opportunity to lead this church, and I will enact some of my preferences, but I want to be very careful to not uh, push my preferences on all people when sometimes there might not, that might not be the best. It might not be in the best interest. You might be saying, well, pastor, shouldn't you uh, be allowed to do whatever you want? No. (laughs) 
I believe that God uh, wants the pastor to not be self-willed. It's very clear here. To not be uh, consumed with his personal agenda. Sometimes there are things that we do here that I don't really, you know, that might, might grate me a little bit. Some of the things that we do. But I know that they're in the best interest of all people. Uh, and that... If you have a question about that, you can come and ask me. It's not, these are not major things. These are not, um, uh, these are not things that are controversial. But what I'm saying is personal preferences need to be set aside at times. Uh, personal preferences should not be what uh, is leading the church. The pastor should be submitted to the Holy Spirit and be uh, mindful to the needs of every person in that congregation. He says also here in verse number uh, seven, what's the next thing? Not soon angry. Uh, means that's, that's talking about somebody who loses their temper. Uh, that's talking about somebody who has a hairline, a hair trigger temper. By the way, temper is a good thing. That's the reason you ought not to lose it. So hold on to it. But a minister who does not have a temper, there's probably something wrong with that pastor. Honestly, all of us have a temper. People say, well, I'm, you know, I've got that uh, German blood in me. You know, I've just got that, that temper. Well, you know, I've heard that about the Irish, too. Do you know that? I've heard that about the Scot Scottish people, too, and the British people. And I've heard about the Italians. They've got a temper, too. And I've heard that about, uh, you know, pretty much anywhere, Right? Every person has an excuse, uh, probably biologically, as to why they have a temper. <laughs> and we kind of, uh, we excuse it. But if we're honest, we'll have to say, even though we have a temper, we need to be careful not to lose that temper. But if there are some things that don't move us to anger then we are different than Jesus because Jesus became angry at the sin of those that were uh, the money changers in the temple. He was moved with anger when he saw the weak being exploited. That, that made him angry. He saw the house of God. He said it was a, had become a den of thieves. Now, uh, Paul says in Ephesians to be angry and sin not. What does that mean? Have you heard that verse before? Be angry and sin not. Like that sounds like a contradiction because isn't anger sin? What he's saying there essentially, what Paul's saying in that verse in Ephesians 4 is to be, it's, it's one thing to be angered, to be brought to anger where we get upset about something. It's another thing to enact or act upon, I should say, act upon the anger in an unrighteous way. Be angry and sin not, Ephesians 4.26. Essentially, the only way to be angry and sin not is to only be angry at sin. Have your temper under control. That is a very hard one. The third thing that we're going to look at here in verse 7 is not given to wine. <laughs> now, the world cannot fathom somebody that does not drink. Uh, it came up last week in the police academy. A few weeks ago, they uh, had field sobriety test training, and we learned how to look at the uh, nystagmus of somebody's eye and, and be able to determine if somebody is under the influence of alcohol or under the influence of, of something. <clears throat> and we went through all of that training. And the next week, the following week, everyone had been dr talking about drinking and, and all this thing. And every single weekend, uh, our sergeant or our captain comes in and says, now it's Friday, don't do anything stupid over the weekend. If you need a ride, call somebody, call us. And I'm thankful because that's not really been a speech I've needed uh, because I've been fortunate enough to have never taken a drink and to never smoked or done drugs. Not everyone can say that. Most people can't. Uh, that, that happens to be, I'm a third generation Christian on one side, fourth generation on another. But, uh, and, and my parents have never drank, as far as I know, and done drugs or smoked. 
So that's a blessing, that's a heritage. I want to pass that down to my children. But the truth is, most people uh, do drink. And I had an opportunity the next week to stand up in class. Uh, I was actually called on. The teacher said, Hoover, that's what they call, call me, okay, just so you know. And uh, Hoover, give us an example of something that uh, you would have to do as a police officer that would maybe uh, be contrary to your personal beliefs. Or, you know, you'd have a problem with something. And I stood up and was put on the spot, so I said, well, I don't drink. And they said, what? Come again? What did you say? I said, I don't drink. And uh, this officer said, one of our instructors said, Hoover, I don't think we can be friends anymore. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure he was joking, but he said, you don't drink? I said, I've never taken a drink. He's like, really? And, um, <clears throat> and they know me well enough now at this point to know I'm not making that up and I'm not lying. And the rest of the class was not like in shock about it either, which I was thankful for, because they already know I don't drink. They want to go out to, uh, to the bars and other things, I don't get invited and I'm not offended. But I was able to stand up and say, well, I don't drink and, and yet on this job there's going to be times where there will be people that we come in contact with that are drinking, but I'm not going to arrest them even though I don't agree with what they're doing. And uh, that was the best illustration I could come up with in that moment, being put on the spot. But it was a great opportunity to tell the whole class and tell this, the teacher and, and to shock them a little bit and say, I don't drink. Because that is so abnormal in our world today. But I don't know of too many good things, if any good thing, that comes from drinking alcohol. I can think of a lot of bad things. I can actually think of a lot of things that we're being trained in the academy to deal with that involve alcohol. Many homicides involve alcohol. Domestic situations many times involve alcohol. And I don't even need to get into drunk driving and all the other things that uh, can happen. And uh, the people losing jobs and, and just the cost and expense of all of that. So if you've been blessed with, uh, with growing up never taking a drink, thank God for that blessing in your life. Amen. That is a blessing to never have had to put that to your lips. And I've had people tell me, that they did it only for social reasons. They didn't even like drinking, but they did it because of the pressure of people that were in their social group. So don't give in to the pressure of people around you. Thank God for that. Now, if you have been, uh, been able to uh, get freed from the bondage of alcohol, praise God for that. And don't go back. Don't go back. And if you have not gotten victory in that area, you don't see the importance of not doing it, why don't you just spend some time and, and sincerely ask the Lord, is this something that is helping my Christian spiritual walk? Is this something that's really enhancing me, my walk as a Christian? Or is this something that's actually hindering me as a believer? We could go in a whole sermon series on the evils of alcohol and how, how it is uh, just a... <clears throat> a detriment to you personally and to society. All of the things in the, many of the situations we could think of in the Bible involved people drinking. Bad things that happened. So uh, you, look at, uh, you look at even David's sin with, with Bathsheba and Uriah and that whole situation. You look at uh, Noah, his sons, that whole situation. Uh, just time after time after time, things that just were tied to alcohol that were not good. So the pastor, the, the bishop, the elder should not be given to wine. A sober person in Milwaukee is definitely an, an oddity. But I think there's enough to be said there. Not a striker, verse 7, not a striker. What does that mean? The word striker literally in the Greek means ready to wound. Ready to wound. Don't be trying to hurt somebody. As a believer, as a Christian, we should be uh, we should be mindful that we are to be uh, the salt of the earth. We're to be light. 
We're to be those that preserve and those that, uh, that espouse truth and that help and love and forgive and all of those things. Our life should not be, uh, should not be uh, characterized by being an angry person who uses violence to deal with problems. And I will say as, as a parent, you need to be very careful as a mom or as a dad to not enact violence on your children when you are angry or when they've done something wrong. I believe in firm discipline. I believe even in spanking, and you have that right as a parent to do that. And I believe that some parents need to do more of it. And uh, in this society, in this world, it is very hard to raise children. Uh, and I know that children are being taught to be disrespectful and to rebel even at an early age. So you as parents need to do everything that you can to be a firm disciplinarian. And I'm all for that. I'm all for the spanking. But I'm against being a striker, to be violent. And, and there's nothing good that comes of that kind of uh, handling of a situation. Sometimes people use even the pulpit, and I think of uh, the uh, pastor here specifically, can use the pulpit as a place to unload on people. It's not the place for that. I believe the, the pulpit is a wonderful place. You can take the word of God and use it in the right way and use it graciously, but use it in a firm way to preach truth. And you can say just about anything, as long as it's backed up in the Bible, you can say just about anything to somebody from the pulpit, and many times people will receive it if it's truth. But uh, the pulpit can also be a place that can hurt people. You can say some hard and difficult things from the, word of, from the Bible, from the Word of God, if people know you love them. It may hurt, <laughs> but they can receive it if they know it's truth and it's spoken in love. But the ministry and the pulpit is, a place, uh, is not a place for somebody who has a desire to wound, somebody that wants to be a bully. We need to be very careful in ministry if you're given an opportunity to, to preach or if you're given an opportunity to teach a class or to even give a testimony or to give a prayer request or to disciple somebody or to be a teacher of some sort, do not use that position of authority to enact uh, your anger on people or to, uh, to deal with people in the way that you want to deal with them in the flesh. The last thing here in verse number seven that we see is not given to filthy lucre. What that literally means is not a money grubber. Not a money grubber. Somebody that is uh, in the ministry for what they can get out of it. Pastors should be paid, I believe. I believe according to 1 Timothy 5, 17, that uh, the elder that rules well is worthy of double honor. Uh, but there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with paying a pastor. I'm grateful for the church that helps me to do my job and that frees me up to do this. But... If you're going into the ministry, somebody wants to enter the ministry, you've got ambition, and you say, I want to be in ministry, you should never, ever, ever do it for money. That is not why you should go into ministry. It's not for gain. So not given to filthy lucre. And by the way, it's so sad what some people have done to the name of, of ministry. To the name of Jesus Christ, for that matter. But think about it. Somebody who is a pastor somebody who's a clergy, somebody who's uh, in ministry, many times are viewed as, why are you doing what you do? There's a lot of question, there's a lot of speculation as to uh, somebody. Uh, maybe there's, because of the abuse that has gone on, all the scandals and abuse, there's that aspect, but then there's also the um, opulent uh, pastors that have the huge mansions and the private jets and all that junk and that has given, that has made, made it very, uh, it's just been made ministry in some ways a little more difficult. Because people look at you and uh, they wonder what your, what your angle is. So don't do ministry for gain. Don't do anything for the sole purpose of just, uh, I'm, I'm in it for the money. Be careful about those types of things. Uh, you ever heard the phrase, there's no, no real get rich quick uh, scheme out there. There's nothing really that will make you rich quick. So many people are looking for uh, how, do I, how do I make money? How do I do this and that? 
I think God has gifted some people to be able to, uh, to take ideas and to work hard and to develop a business model and all of those things. And I'm not against, I'm not against people actually making a living and make, being productive. And if God blesses them uh, financially, well, praise the Lord for that. But I believe that the, the goal behind all of that should not be just to be uh, wealthy, but to use your talent and to use your business and to use um, your abilities for the glory of God. <laughs> there should be, again, no separation between the private life and the public life, between secular and between uh, your Christian life. It should go hand in hand. So everything that we should do, you might be saying, well, I'm not in ministry, so I can just go out and make money. I believe that, it, that, that if you're doing it just for the money, that is wrong. Titus 1, verse 8. So he says here, uh, but a lover of hospitality. Now here's the positive things. I like this one. That means he enjoys having guests. He loves people. You can't be in the ministry without loving people. You can't be spirit-filled without loving people. Sad to say, too many people love themselves. You are being programmed and taught in this culture to love yourself. Now, I, I, I want to be careful to say that we should, not be, uh, we should not abuse ourselves or be hard on ourselves or put ourselves down. We should understand that we are created in the image of God. God loves us. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us, and we are very important to God. You are very important to God. You are special to God. You're not just a number to God. Sometimes we think that. Sometimes, well, God, uh, you've got more important things to do than to care about my problems. No, that's not true. He cares about uh, the sparrow that flies. He cares about the lilies. He cares about all of those things. And aren't you more important than a sparrow or a lily? God cares about you. But I want to be careful that we don't give in to this humanistic philosophy of it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. No, it's all about God. So he created us for his glory. Keep that in mind as you live your life. But he says, given to hospitality, we need to love people, love others. Do you want to have joy in your life? It's so simple. Put Jesus first, put others second, put yourself last. Right in that order. The, the joke has been made from time to time. The ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. <laughs> Do you love the ministry? I, I, I know that there's some hear that, understand what ministry is. You've been in full-time ministry before. You might be in full-time ministry as a school teacher or as some other capacity right now. And honestly, wherever you are, whatever you do, consider it your ministry. Amen? That'll actually make it easier for you to go to work. <laughs> you know, I saying, well, I don't like this job. I hate this job. Well, did God give you that job? Does God have some opportunities for you at that job and some people to talk to and some things to do? Uh, but the ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. But do you love the ministry or do you love the people who you are ministering to? Because people are the ministry. That's why that's such a funny phrase, because it's, it's a joke. It's a joke. People are the ministry. But sad to say, some preachers can preach without loving the people that they're preaching to. It's sad to say that some people can minister in Sunday school or the bus ministry or even singing or playing an instrument. They can do all of those things without actually considering the people to whom they are ministering to because it's about themselves. Some leaders love to sit on committees, form strategies. They, they've been gifted uh, to be able to uh, plan and they have an ability there. But they love maybe doing all of that behind-the-scenes work. But they love it more than they love the people for whom they are planning and preparing. Some teachers love theology. They have a passion for studying the Bible even. They, want, they, they just love it. They eat that up. And they uh, love to argue the fine points of theology, which is great. Yet they don't have a heart for the people that they are teaching. Uh, do not engage in an argument with somebody for the sole purpose of just having an argument about theology. The, the thing is to encourage one another, as the Bible says, iron sharpeneth iron. We should be encouraging one another 
provoking one another to love and good works in our topics of theology, in our discussions of doctrine and theology, it should not just be make ourselves look smarter than somebody else. That's wicked. <laughs> that's, that's very much uh, a pride motivation. It should, be the, it should be for the purpose of helping one another. Loving people is not just part of the ministry, it is the ministry. People need attention. People need care. They need love. Do you know how to spell love? Tell me how to spell love. L-O-V-E, right? But I've heard actually uh, Pastor John Wilkerson, he always says, love is spelled T-I-M-E. Gotta give people some time. You gotta give them your time. Amen? And sometimes people, uh, they take a lot of time. Some people take no time and others take all the time, right? And... um, and it's not, it's not good to overlook people. They need help. Pastor Wilkerson also says that pastors, I've heard him say this so many times, pastors should smell like sheep. Like, what are you talking about? Past- well, we talked about this word last week, pastor. Uh, in the Greek, it's the word poimen, which means uh, the shepherd of the flock, right? Pastor, poimen, shepherd. They are to feed the flock, they're to protect the flock, to lead the flock, uh, kind of like Psalm 23 with the good shepherd, or the, the shepherd there. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, David says, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Think about that, the job of the pastor, We're to find a place for the sheep to feed and to be cared for and to be protected. And the job of the pastor is so important, but the pastor, if he's doing his job correctly, he's going to be with the people. He's going to smell like the sheep. A shepherd, a good shepherd, smells like sheep. Might not be pleasant, but it's, it's a reality. It's the reality, it's a fact. Loving people is a chief requirement for the man of God. He's to be a lover of hospitality. First um, Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, I want to give this thought. Not only should the pastor love the people, but I, I, I'm so appreciative of this church because you guys love the pastor. And it's a, a wonderful relationship. But Paul says here, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. That's a place of authority, a place of prote- uh, one who protects and leads, but it's still a place of authority. They're over you in the Lord. Know them, he says. He says, and to esteem them highly. Verse 13, to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. What does that mean, to esteem them very highly for their work's sake? That means to to respect that person because they have a very, uh, very important job in relation to your life. They're there to protect you spiritually, to feed you spiritually, and to help you and encourage you. And they should love you, but you need to love them. It's a wonderful relationship. That's how we have uh, unity in our churches. Sad to say that too many churches do not love their pastor. They are, uh, they are adverse, they're, ad, they're an adversary they have an adver- adversarial relationship with authority. That's called rebellion. When a child does not respect its parents, when a child does not respect his or her parents, that's called rebellion. You might say, well, it's inward, well, it's still rebellion. They are at, uh, they're at enmity with their parents. And that parent cannot do their job effectively. If a pastor and his people are at odds, it's not going to be a good situation. The people are going to be hurt, and the pastor is going to be hurt. Longevity in the ministry comes, I believe, from when a pastor does his job and the people do their job. So uh, that word there in verse number eight, lover of hospitality, then he says a lover of good men. That word in the Greek, philographos, means a lover of all that is good. It goes beyond just men. Uh, It means that they love that which is pure and just. Then he says there uh, in verse number eight, sober, 
Now, this is not the same idea that we saw earlier about not drinking. This means, uh, this has another idea. It means to be sane and sensible. A pastor should have the right temperament and disposition to lead the people. Uh, Sad to say, there's too many people in ministry that should not be in ministry because they don't have their own life together. I'm not saying that I, I have it all together today, but what I'm saying is, I think that you would want somebody in this position that has some sense and has some wisdom and is willing to, if they don't have wisdom, is willing to get wisdom, amen? And to to admit that they don't have it all together if they don't have it all together. That's the idea of being sane and sensible, to have good judgment, um, to be willing to listen, to be willing to learn, uh, too many people are, are saying, well, I deserve to be in the ministry because I've got lots of experience. It has nothing to do with it. Because I know of pastors that have been pastoring for 40 years and pastors that have been pastoring four years. And the one that's been pastoring 40 years should not be in the ministry because they're proud, they're arrogant, they can't learn from anybody, they already know it all, I appreciate the one that's been in ministry for only four years who understands that they need to learn some things, but they're willing to listen. They are, they are also approachable. They love their people. They are uh, maybe not as educated <laughs> as the one that's been there 40 years, but they're willing to learn. I think there's something to be said about that. Sober. Uh, I, hear, I hear a lot of things, and... I, I can't speak on all of them, but I know for, for a fact there are many, many pastors out there who are, as the Bible calls them, novices. We could look at uh, what Paul wrote later, but novices, meaning that they, they are just not, they are not capable of doing the job of a pastor. But because, of, because there was nobody else to do the job, they became a pastor. Be careful, be careful, be careful about putting people as a deacon or as a pastor who do not have the maturity or the temperament to be in that position. I think a pastor should bring people together to unify people, to not create factions. That's part of that temperament aspect, to be willing to bring people together, to, uh, to find compromise at times, to uh, make relationships work. Sad to say, too many pastors get into that position and they want to build a kingdom around themselves and their personality, and it becomes, in a sense, a personality cult that is so wrong. The only person that the church should be built around is Jesus Christ. And if we do that correctly, if we bring people to Christ and we seek for revival in those cliques and the factions that sometimes happen because people are people and people are problems, if we, if we seek for that spiritual maturity throughout the body of Christ, we can have unity when we, when we lead people to Jesus. And that should be the goal. The pastor is also to be just. That means uh, basically to be right with others. And to be holy, that means to be right with God. Amen? He is to be temperate. That means to have his own life under control. How can I try to help you if I don't seek to help myself in my own life? Uh, You know, I am so thankful. And by the way, who gets overlooked so many times when we're talking about the pastor is the pastor's wife. Amen? I'm so thankful for a wife that has uh, the house under control that manages the home because that frees me up to help you and you and you and you and you and all of us together but if I don't have things together at home then my mind is on that and you might be saying well that's good for the pastor but no that should be good for all people moms dads you need to have your homes together your home should be I'm not saying that you have to have a nice, perfect home and everything has to be painted and meticulous and all of that. Lord knows mine, mine is not. It is definitely lived in. We do have three small children. But what I'm saying is our, our home is clean. As they've said, probably to you growing up and to me growing up, water is free and soap is cheap. There's no excuse to be dirty. Clean your home, spiritually and physically. 
Some people bristle at that kind of thing, but I believe it's so, I, I, I know it's so practical, but it has so many spiritual ramifications. If your mind is cluttered, it's probably because your home is a mess. If your spirit is troubled, it could have something to do with all of the junk that is left undone. Don't take on new projects without completing that which you have already started. You will, not, you will struggle and struggle. You'll be on that hamster wheel and you're gonna not be at peace in your life. Simplicity is so important to have a walk with God. See, this world tells us, oh, you need more, you need more, you need this, you need the latest this and that. Guess what? No, you don't. Well, I need it for my job. Probably not. Well, I need it to be able to connect and to stay in touch with the grandkids. Fine. But do you need the latest of everything? More junk, more clutter equals more, uh, just more problems in your mind, right? In your life, your spirit, you're gonna be troubled, you're gonna be hurting, and in long term, that's not good. You can deal with some things temporarily, I'm sure you can have stress in your life at times. All of us are gonna have stress, all of us are gonna have things that, all of those things, but if it's self-induced and, and if we're self-sabotaging our own homes, you're gonna answer to God for that. Do not bite off more than you can chew. Do not take on more ministry. And I have been a biggest proponent of this. When I came here, I, I've, I've said to people, dial it back, take care of your home. Get your home under control. How can you minister to somebody uh, long term when you yourself are, you're letting yourself go? I'll say that about the physical life as well. If you have to get yourself fit physically, I, I remember hearing, and I'm gonna be done here in a second, but I, I remember hearing Robert Jeffress say this a number of years ago, probably ten, more than 10 years ago now. But he's a pastor of a, a First Baptist Church in Dallas. And he said that he runs every day three miles. I've never done that. Never done that. But he said, you know why I do it? Not because I enjoy it. <laughs> but he said, and he was talking about the concept of of being able to do ministry and having longevity. He said, eventually my body's going to give way to death. Everything's decaying, right? He said, but if I can stave off the decay just a little bit, to have a more effective ministry, to have a longer ministry, to have more time with my family, he said, I'm willing to make that sacrifice. So maybe we should uh, look well into getting our homes decluttered getting our lives decluttered. Get the junk out of your life. Stop saying, I need it, I need it, I need it. You do not. You don't. And so the pastor should have, uh, be temperate, to have some self-control. Paul is saying to Titus, be blameless in your home. Lead these other men. Appoint people, appoint these elders. Ordain them that are blameless in their homes, their personal lives. And by the way, that advice is not just for pastors, it is for all of us. All of us. It is just the pastor that is uh, expected to be at that level. That is where he should be. But everyone should, is really held to the same standard. With your head bowed and eyes closed, I'm gonna ask that you consider for a moment the need of your life, whatever that might be. Or maybe something that came, came to light while we were looking at the word. Some areas that uh, you need help with. That's wonderful. Think about the conviction of the Holy Spirit is a wonderful thing. Just means that you're alive <laughs> and uh, God wants to tell you some things. And you have an opportunity because you have God's power. You have an opportunity to change and to grow. So whatever area that is, I ask you this morning that you'd submit to the Lord. Listen to him. If you're not saved today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you need to be forgiven of your sins. But God gives you that free gift of salvation. He gives it to you freely. It is yours. 
It cost Jesus the old rugged cross. But he says to you that you can have eternal life. He wants you to come and drink of that living water. And so today, if you need to be forgiven of your sins, it is, it is a matter of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not joining our church or any other church. It's not being baptized. It is a faith thing. You're putting your trust in Jesus alone. And so if that's you today, you might be saying, I, I need to get saved this morning. We'd be happy to, more than happy to show you from the Word of God how you can do that. If that's you this morning, I'd like for you to just lift your hand and say, I need to get saved today. I'd like to get that. Nobody's looking around. No, nobody's looking at you. But I'd like to get that settled this morning. If that's you today, go ahead and raise your hand. We'd be happy to show you from the Word of God. You have an opportunity in just a moment, as the piano plays in just a moment, you have an opportunity to come and talk to somebody that would love to take the Word of God and uh, counsel you on how you can be saved. I'm going to ask that our, our church family make room for you to get out if that's your need. If you need to get out of the aisle and come down here and talk to somebody, we, we would be more than happy to show you. We'd be a, we would be overjoyed that you come. But our church family is going to make way for you to get out. They're going to come to the altar and they're going to come and pray. So you just come and join them. Find somebody to talk to down here and uh, we'll direct you in that way. As soon as I say amen, the piano will play and you come. Father, I do pray that you bless in this time of invitation. I ask that you would work in our hearts. Help us to do what's right. Help us to get uh, your, uh, your heart for our own life, that we would do what's right. We'd get areas under control that are out of control. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to realize that we're just one person. We're, we work together. We are cooperatively working towards fulfilling the Great Commission. But Father, we're only one person. We cannot reach all of Milwaukee by ourselves. So Lord, I do pray that you would help us to submit and realize that we have limitations. I pray that you would help us to uh, look well into dealing with our personal lives so that we have longevity. We can do ministry over decades, if you give us that time, but decades rather than uh, fizzling out and quitting, giving up because we did too much. I pray that you would help us today to be, be dependent solely on your Holy Spirit for all that we do because we know that you give us grace and help and strength. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to become more and more dependent upon your Holy Spirit. fully.